Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 днів міцної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись, ми, діти, всі ми, живі люди, вся Україна. As evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine mount, US President Joe Biden pointedly accuses Vladimir Putin of carrying out a genocide. Now, this is not a word that US presidents or other Western leaders use lightly, but the intentional bombing of civilian targets, as well as the mass executions and torture of civilians in Bucha and elsewhere, suggests that Biden's remarks were appropriate, if not overdue. But genocide also involves intent, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And statements by Putin and other Russian leaders and the content of Russian state-controlled media suggest that intent is also present. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the genocidal rhetoric and what it pretends as Putin's war against Ukraine enters its eighth week. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vienna is my old friend Anton Shekhovsov, director of the Center for Democratic Integrity, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation and author of the must-read book, Russia and the Western Far Right, Tango Noir. Welcome back to The Vertical, Anton. It's been way too long. Hello, Brian, and glad to hear you again. Glad to, glad to hear you. And also joining us from Vasilkiv in Kiev Oblast is Alexander Kara, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies in Kiev. Welcome back to The Vertical, Sasha. Hello, Brian. Good to, be good, to see you. good to see you. So on April 3rd, just as the world was learning about the atrocities committed by Russian troops in Bucha, an article appeared on the Kremlin-controlled RIA Novosti site titled What Russia Needs to Do About Ukraine, authored by the political consultant Timofey uh, Sergeyev. It argued that Ukrainian national identity is, quote, an artificial anti-Russian construct that has no civilizational content of its own. It is a, quote, subordinate element of foreign and alien cultures. Ukrainians, it argues, are therefore Nazis and need to be eliminated. The Yale University historian Timothy Snyder, in an article, called this a, quote, genocide handbook. And in a piece for Harats Anton, you called it, quote, an actual plan of programmatic genocide. Explain your thinking for our listeners, Anton. I know you've been following this aspect of the war very, very closely. How does this widely discussed article fit into a larger context, context including Putin's own article on Ukraine that was published last spring, his speech on the eve of the war, and other rhetoric we've been hearing from Moscow, both from officials and from the media? Uh, Brian, uh, I think for Ukrainians, uh, it has been quite clear from the very start, from from basically the end of February, that uh, Putin uh, is actually trying to uh, to commit genocide of the Ukrainians. And uh, I've started writing about this um, very early, so more than a month ago. Uh, it, and the reason why it became so clear is that the rhetoric of Putin himself um, 
It was like when he when he declared essentially the war on Ukraine, when he used all those words, you know, about Ukrainians, about denazification, that was uh, so clear. And Timofeyev's article in the RIA Novosti, uh, that was not really new. Uh, we, you, you referred to this that Putin himself was was uh, making this statement that Ukrainians do not exist as a nation, it's a fake nation. But um, I would also refer to some uh, from some piece uh, to some pieces written uh, several years ago. Uh, for example, one uh, was written, I think, in 2016. Uh, by uh, by a member of the neo-fascist uh, movement in Russia, uh, the guy who was also uh, cooperating with the Russian imperial movement, uh, which is now considered to be a global terrorist organization by the United States. So in that piece from 2016, uh, Zhuchkovsky, uh, that's the name of this person. He was writing almost the same things about uh, about Ukraine, about the need to destroy Ukrainians. He was he was uh, talking directly about the destruction of of Ukraine and the Ukrainian nations. And he even called for the dehumanization, deliberate dehumanization of Ukrainians, saying we are not fighting against the enemies. We are fighting against Ukrainians. We are not fighting against people. We are fighting against Ukrainians. What is new here with Timofey's article and the article in uh, in, in Ria Novosti is that the the previous neo-fascist thinking and genocidal uh, statements of the of the Russian fringes have now become mainstream, and this is something really really new. This has not happened uh, in the past. Now it's now this, this mainstreaming, this normalization of genocidal rhetoric. Is is just uh, astonishing. It, again, it's not surprising in a way, but it is astonishing that it has become so blatant, so open. We knew we knew about this before. We knew that uh, again that Putin did not believe in the existence of the Ukrainian nation, so it has to be eliminated in order to uh, for for uh, for his reality uh, for his own reality to become a reality for everyone. But this mainstreaming, you know, Ria Novosti, this is this is new. But in terms of what this is going to what this means in practice, I mean, it does not mean that 44 uh, million Ukrainians are going to be liquidated. What does it mean in practice? I mean, if, if, if the Ria Novosti piece talks a little bit about things like re-education and things like that, can you can you expand on that? Because I know you've been keeping up on that aspect of it as well. Well, one one very important um, perspective on genocide is that it's not about numbers; it's about intent. Mm -hmm. uh, this is important. The intent is important, and the intent ha uh, has been made very, very clear. Uh, not only in that Ria Novosti article, but uh, previously, and again in Putin's speech, that that is uh, important. Uh, also, we see practices such as well killing members of the group. Uh, mm -hmm. That is in the legal uh, legal definition of genocide uh, uh, in the interpretation of the United Nations. Um, then uh, making life basically horrible for the members of the group while this is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, targeting civilians while this is not the uh, this is not part of the definition, but it's very close to you know killing members of the group. And then I think the the most recent development is even you know more obvious. Uh, uh, that's about your know, deportation of children, yes. 
taking children out of the uh, one group and transporting them to another group, which basically means that children, uh, which is the future, always the future of the nation, they are now being um, they're now being uh, stripped of, of of their identity, of their nation, national Ukrainian identity. So um, it all fits very perfectly. And in 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 one of the pieces uh, on this uh, on this topic, I wrote that it seems like they like like the Russians took the legal definition of genocide of the United Nations mm. and turned it into a program. You know, a real program. This is what they're doing. Yeah, I do want to drill down later in our discussion into this uh, this kidnapping and deportation of these children. This is something I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention here in the West. I'm trying to bring it up in almost every media appearance I, I make. I want to shift briefly over to Sasha and get your thoughts on this, how this looks from Kiev. Um, if this is indeed the Russian war plan for Ukraine, then Ukraine has no choice but to not just to win this war, but to win it decisively, because anybody that falls on the wrong side of the line is going to be subject to Putin's plans. How do you how, how, how did you react to this? Uh, well, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it just uh, to to just uh, bring the uh, the quote of one of the leaders of the Israeli state that if one side see, wants to, to see you dead, you have no other choice. So uh, I believe that it's a war, uh, existential war with, with Russia, and it's not just about uh, Ukrainian independence, but uh, identity as well. I am personally, I'm ethnic Greek, so I'm, I'm not an uh, ethnic Ukrainian, uh, but I feel it personally, because there is a long record of Russia and Soviet Union and Russia, contemporary Russia, tries to be as much as possible similar in their policies, uh, ideology and actions as the Soviet Union. Uh, they've done a lot of harm to all ethnic minorities, uh, not just Ukrainians. So that's why I feel it uh, in the historical perspective. Anton is talking about the current thing, and certainly uh, based on the facts and based on the international law, uh, all, all those crimes uh, committed by the Russian forces would be judged and possibly we will uh, define it in legal terms as genocide. Mm -hmm. I support it, and, and certainly I would love to see uh, those uh, who committed these crimes being uh, brought to justice. But I would like to, to, to tell a couple of words about history. Uh, first of all, uh, Raphael Lemkin, who coined the very term of genocide, was struck by those atrocities committed by the Soviets uh, during the uh, the uh, 1930s and the artificial uh, famine that was uh, aimed at Ukrainians more than other nations. Uh, we call it Holodomor, yeah. and we believe it's, it was genocide. And the Russians are denying, uh, still denying that uh, it was intent uh, to kill uh, as much uh, Ukrainians as possible as a major goal of those uh, Bolshevik uh, policies. Uh, secondly, uh, if we are talking about the old, uh, old memory, and we are actually in Ukraine and in this part of the world uh, uh, closer to Balkan thinking, uh, so we uh, we remember all things uh, that happened uh, centuries before. And I would like to uh, recall the events of uh, 1708 uh, when the Moscowites, uh, uh, they just massacred uh, 
from 11 to 15,000 innocent people after uh, Hetman uh, Mazepa uh, was uh, joining the, the Swedish uh, army, the Swedish uh, king against uh, Peter uh, I. So uh, there is an old tradition of, of the Moscovites and the, the Soviets and nowadays Russians of this brutal kill, killing of innocent as a way of sending the message right. or the way of uh, imposing its colonial or neo-colonial rule. So that's why we need to, to, to think it, about it. But on the other hand, I would like to just quote uh, Philip Sands, who is a, a former uh, the judge of the International Court of Justice, uh, who is advising Ukrainian government on the issues of genocide and war crimes, uh, he is pushing forward the other way how to bring to justice the Russians. Uh, he's uh, talking about the uh, war of aggression, and he is saying it was a, the supreme uh, uh, supreme crime defined by the Nuremberg process. And it's much easier to, uh, let's say, to prove that Russia is waging unjust and legal uh, and unfair, unprovoked war against Ukraine. So I'm uh, wholeheartedly for genocide thing and to, to bring to justice uh, the Putin and his minions. Uh, but from the other hand, from the uh, feasibility, from the possibility to, to prove uh, those, uh, those crimes, I, I would uh, opt for something more real. Yeah, no, I am, and I am hoping. I've been trying to put together a program, still lining up guests with with uh, former war crimes prosecutors, so we could really talk about the mechanics of this and, and what kinds of war crimes charges could be could be levied against Putin and his and, and, and others in his chain of command. I want to pick up on something you said, Sasha, and kind of talk about it with with, with all three of us. Is this is we, the, the notion of a civic nation? You you noted that you are you are Greek. But yet you identify you're a Ukrainian citizen and identify as Ukrainian. Uh, Anton, I know you are you are a Russian speaker. Russian's your first language. Yet you identify as a Ukrainian as, as a Ukrainian. The president of Ukraine is a is a is a Russian speaking Jewish man, right? Ukraine has formed a civic nation, right? Um, in this sense, it's 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 very similar to America in this sense. Um, it's united by the fact that you all choose to believe in this thing called Ukraine. Right. It's a civic nation. It's not dependent on ethnicity. Now, this is a completely alien concept to Putin. The idea that Russian speakers in Ukraine could first and foremost identify themselves as Ukrainians appears to me to just to be a, a completely alien concept to, to, to Putin, who kind of is looking looking at this in terms of ethno nations. Right. And if you look at Russian conduct in Ukraine, they're bombing the hell out of cities that are populated by Russian speakers and ethnic Russians like Kharkiv. Um, so it seems that there has been a shift in the Russian thinking on this, that there, you know, that Ukraine was somehow this divided nation along language and ethnicity to the fact that all of these people that identify with this Ukrainian nation, this civic nation, um, that the, the they have to be eliminated. Uh, Anton, do you have any thoughts on that? I know you look at nationalism professionally, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, you know, Brian, I would beg to differ with you on, on this concept of, of civic nation. Um, you know, a civic nation, this concept is basically it's an ideal type. Uh, but in mm -hmm. reality, there are very few uh, like real civic nations in the world. It's, you know, it's a, uh, you know, if we're talking about this scale between ethnic nation and then civic nation, uh, it's you know it's a real it's really a scale it's it, mm. you, you can't really find it like a pure it, pure manifestation of, co of course of not but you would you, so, would you argue Ukraine falls on the on that scale 
closer to the civic side than the ethno side? I, I would say that it's actually it's, it's somewhere in the middle, because even if we identify ourselves as Ukrainians, it means that we also recognize that uh, for Ukraine, it will be Ukrainian language, that would be state language, and that U Ukrainian tradition and culture would be the traditional culture of Ukraine as a nation state. Mm -hmm. So still we are, we're taking these ethnic roots of the nation and mm -hmm. make them you know uh, uh, the foundation of a civic nation so it's it's not a, it's not a pure civic nation i would say okay but it's become more inclusive and become more civic over the the years i mean i think there've been some some watersheds in this 2014 for example was a very big watershed in this event but it's just what what always strikes me when i go to ukraine is that yes ukrainian is the official language that's the that's a, the state language but if you walk the streets of Kiev or any other city, you're gonna hear both languages. You're gonna hear both languages. Sometimes in the same conversation, you're gonna have you hear both languages. You're gonna hear people flipping back and forth between Russia and Ukrainian. You're gonna have conversations where one is speaking one and one is speaking the other and, and everybody's understanding each other. And this, I didn't find this to be the case in the early nineties when I lived in, in Ukraine. There were Russian speaking parts of the country and Ukrainian speaking parts in the country and almost never the twain shall meet. Now now it's 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 very, very much mixed. And again, thinking back to the, the, the way that Putin and the Russians are viewing this, this is an alien idea to them because they are very much an ethno nation. Yes, and also uh, what's important here is that the idea of nationalism, you know, if we even, you know, don't talk about uh, um, different versions of nationalism, the, nation, the, the core of nationalism is that we feel that we are a separate group that we are a nation, we understand ourselves as a nation, we identify mm -hmm. ourselves with a particular, with this group. And we say that we want, for our group, we, we want to have a sovereign nation state. So this mm -hmm. is the core, this is the basic, the basis mm -hmm. of nationalism. And this is what Putin denies us. He says, no, you are not a separate group. You are just misguided, confused Russians. Uh -huh. you, you, you should not exist uh, because you know if you believe that you have you should have a separate state a sovereign nation state that is different from Russia th th then you are a Nazi yeah right you know you're a Ukrainian Nazi yeah no and I want to pick up on this Nazi thing because I think this really needs a lot of explanation for uh, for, for Western audiences that, that hear this word and it conjures up a certain set of images. And when Russia uses this word, it conjures up a totally different set of images. But first, I wanted to get Alexander's or Sasha's thoughts on, on this idea of civic nationhood. Well, I, I mostly agree with you because you no, know, uh, just as being in uh, a representative of ethnic minority, uh, and especially I'm, I'm originally from Donetsk, uh, and my mother tongue is Russian. And the reason why uh, it's uh, Russian, it's because in 1937, uh, al almost all uh, intellectual elite of Ukrainian Greeks has been killed uh, uh, during these uh, repressions. And Ukrainian Ukrainian Greeks are most, the most Russified uh, ethnic minority mm -hmm. in Ukraine, followed by the Jews. So uh, that's why when Ukraine became independent, our ethnic minority, and as well as other ethnic minorities of Ukraine, uh, uh, received the possibility of uh, uh, or preach their culture, their religion, and other things. So we are happy to 
be within these uh, political boundaries of, of Ukraine as, and feel ourselves as, as the Ukrainians. Uh, I mean, not an ethnic, but uh, in civic uh, meaning. And certainly we have this long memory because, you no, know, Greeks were the first nation to be deported by the uh, Russian Empire back in 1778 from Crimea to the steppe of Azov. And now Mariupol is our cap capital of Greeks uh, being destroyed uh, methodically on industrial scale. Uh, so that's why uh, we just we cannot uh, tolerate uh, the ideas, the very ideas of, of the Russian world that we, 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 we have no right to exist as a nation, a separate nation. So I, I feel myself as an ethnic Greek and I, I cherish my, uh, let's say, uh, the historical background back to the ancient Greece. But from the other hand, I'm, I'm Ukrainian and I, I'm, I, I would love to see only one state language, which is Ukrainian. And I, I don't want to, uh, to, to, to just to get any more, uh, let's say, possibilities for, for Russian language. If you are talking about my son, who, who feel himself uh, even more Ukrainian than my, my, myself, he, he chose uh, to study uh, German as a third language, not the Russian, even though in, in our family it's a common language. So mm -hmm. I, I think that there is a huge shift in that. Uh, and the people, even uh, before this war, before the 24th of uh, February, a lot of uh, Rus uh, Russophiles, uh, those who uh, tend to see the world from the uh, Russian point of view, uh, they, they are alienated. And that's why we will see less and less Russian culture, Russian language, and certainly Russian mm -hmm. uh, political influence in Ukraine. And more and more, uh, I would say, multicultural Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it began in Maidan, you're right, because in Maidan we didn't have just two categories of people, the Russian Orthodox uh, representatives and the uh, far-left guys, because they were pro-Russian from the beginning. And the rest, uh, from Ukrainian-Russian speakers, uh, the Jews, uh, the, the Armenians, Greeks, uh, Belarusians, just name it. So it, it was the, the crucial moment of, of this new nation. It's difficult uh, issue how we are going to forge all those good things into something new, qualitative view after mm -hmm. the war. But uh, at the moment, uh, we're certainly a separate nation. We deserve to be uh, respected. We deserve to be provided with the possibility to, to flourish as a separate nation. Yeah, I, and I want to I want to pick up on what Anton also was saying about this Nazi business, because I think, again, Western audiences need it requires a little explanation. Um, what the Russians mean by this when they accuse the Ukrainians of being Nazis. I mean, in, in our minds, you know, in our Western minds, it conjures up images of swastikas and torch lit parades and, 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 and things like that. Anton, what does this, what does Putin mean and what do Russians mean when they call the Ukrainians Nazis? So first of all, uh, what needs to be said is that uh, the term Nazi in the Kremlin speak has nothing to do with either historical or political science. What they mean by Nazi is best explained, I think, with the reference to the Soviet interpretations of fascism. So, um, as we know, uh, the Soviets obviously did not use the, the same thesaurus, uh, academic <laughs> thesaurus, as, as in the West. So, basically, what they meant by, uh, by the term fascism, it was essentially it was a synonym for anti-Sovietism. So a fascist is anti-Soviet. Um, the the Kremlin, Putin, and his environment they largely uh, they largely uh, adopted the same approach. Basically, Nazi is anti-Russian because they consider, and this is you know, uh, Putin himself used this uh, phrase that 
uh, we will not allow Ukraine to become anti-Russia. So essentially, we will not uh, allow to, for Ukraine to, you know, uh, to develop its own national identity, which they believe to be anti-Russian. So they so and this this means that if you're anti-Russian, and if Ukraine is anti-Russia, it means that Ukraine is Nazi. And uh, so this is the this is the interpretation. This is how they they think they this is how they consider they conceptualize this right. Nazi. It's just a person who believes that Ukraine is a separate nation. It's separate from Russia. That it shouldn't be a part of the Russian sphere of influence if it doesn't want to. Uh, so you are, sorry, you're, you're a Nazi. If you believe in these ideas, uh, then you are a Nazi. This, this is how they interpret this. Right, and this is as as, as Professor Timothy Snyder at Yale University argued in, in a recent piece, denazification then is a code word almost for genocide, uh, going, bringing it kind of full circle to how our discussion began. Would, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, and this is what I've been saying um, right uh, when it started. When I heard the when I heard the, uh, the 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 term denazification, I immediately understood that that means the de-Ukrainization. And if you remember in that uh, Ria Novosti piece, it was uh, said very clear clearly that denazification involves de-Ukrainization yes. of of Ukraine, yes. and then Ukraine will cease to exist. It's you know it's just. Uh, it's a pro it's programmatic genocide. It's yes. uh, here here you are your intent here here you are. Here it's all spelled are. out. Yeah, it's just like Mein Kampf in that way. It's, it basically spells out the intent right down to the details. It said Ukraine should be break it, broken up into smaller units. That that, that its population should be reeducated, which is absolutely chilling to read, knowing the history of, of Russia. Any thoughts on this, uh, Sasha? Well, uh, just you, you brought uh, again the, the term genocide. And actually, if we uh, have a look at the justification of this uh, illegal uh, war against Ukraine, it was uh, so-called genocide of the Russian speakers or, or ethnic minority. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the reasons why uh, two days after the full-fledged uh, invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine appealed to the International Court of Justice on the basis of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention of uh, and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So Russians are diminishing in these terms. They are trying to manipulate with them. Uh, and uh, actually, it's, 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 it's a wrong thing because not just Russians are doing this. Some other nations, and you, you, you said and you, you uh, recalled uh, this line about the uh, concentration camps and re-education, but uh, let's have a look at what uh, has been done to Uyghur population in China. Mm -hmm. So uh, how we should uh, qualify those activities uh, uh, and actions of the Chinese government uh, to the, its uh, alienated population Population or the different population who wants to to preserve its identity. So uh, it's 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 really uh, important thing how uh, great powers are trying to manipulate with uh, legal definitions and how to uh, how they are just uh, um, installing it in, in the, their propaganda in their justification of, of uh, illegal and crime uh, criminal actions. Yeah, and I want to I want to drill down a little bit before we shift into the second half and talk about the kind of the changing uh, uh, military situation on the ground. I, I wanted to look at some of these ways that this is already being being carried out. I mean, we're talking about an estimated four hundred thousand Ukrainians have been forcefully deported and placed in fil either filtration camps in Russian occupied areas of the Donbass or in Russia proper. What's going to happen to those people? 
Um, I, I, it frightens me to even think about it. Children, as you mentioned earlier, Anton, are being taken taken into Russia so they could be adopted by Russian parents. Um, this all seems to be part of this. And when you think through how Ukraine is can approach this war, I think this cannot help but change the calculus. I mean, early on, we were hearing all of this talk of a possible deal. Um, of recognition of the independence of the, the Russian-occupied lands in the East and so on and so forth. I, from the, where I sit, this makes, seems to make this impossible because you're not just talking about land here. You're talking about people. You're talking about your own citizens who would be kind of relegated to, to a horrible fate should that happen. Alexander, you kind of you, you worked in the National Security and Defense Council. I mean, how does this change or does it change if you say the Ukrainians never had any illusions about what the Russians' plans were? But does this affect the way... Kiev approaches this war and how it might end up ending. Well, I will, will divide it in two parts. Uh, firstly, the negotiation team uh, that is trying to find a compromise with Russians in Istanbul, and I am very skeptical about the very possibility of any compromise at the moment. Uh, I believe the major or the main diplomat of Ukraine now it's not uh, President uh, Zelensky, neither Mr. Kuleba, who is a foreign minister, but uh, Mr. Zaluzhny, who is the chief uh, military guy. So I believe uh, he is creating uh, uh, the uh, right conditions for possible compromises with Russia after these battles that we are we are expecting in the in the east of, of Ukraine but in general we should not talk just about people we should talk about the the, the complex things uh, I'm personally from Donetsk, but I believe we should not agree even on the, uh, let's say, on satisfaction of the Russian claim of Crimea, because Crimea is the most important thing in this war. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a, the, uh, the uh, knife near our neck, and if we allow Russians to, to hold it to, in legal terms, it means that we are, uh, we are just compromising on our strategic security. So that's why we should not compromise neither on Donetsk, Lugansk, nor the Crimean Peninsula, because it's not just a matter of uh, territory and people, but it's a matter of the survival of our state. So that's why I, I, be, I believe there is no possibility for any compromise of agreeing with Russia that is uh, theirs. Uh, so that's why we need to, to, to fight for that, or at least we need to uh, not agree uh, on, uh, on, on paper, on legal uh, agreements uh, that uh, it's uh, something undecided. So it's much better to, to take the Japanese example when they, 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 they uh, just post the war, the Second World War, and they still don't have the friendship agreement uh, between the countries because uh, there are some uh, issues with the northern territories of Japan being occupied by, by Soviet Union and then uh, Russia. So I, I believe this is the only way, the only right way how to secure uh, our integrity and uh, our uh, security in the future. No, so so from from listening to you, what I keep thinking is then total victory is the only is the only option, really. Anton, you're from Crimea. Um, how do would you agree with what what Alexander has to say? Yeah, I totally agree, and I don't see how the negotiations um, can actually go for um, you know go further after what we saw in Bucha and other towns uh, in the Kiev region, because uh, I think now we, we see that there is a pause and we, I think, you know, we are sort of waiting for the storm. And mm. I believe that much of the negotiations, they will be redefined. Uh, this is my belief, depending mm. on the outcome of the uh, Russian aggression in the Donbass. 
because uh, we know that now, now they are they are preparing for uh, right. for an attack uh, in in the Donbas. Uh, uh, they are going still 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 trying to build that uh, land bridge to annex mm -hmm. Crimea. So I would even um, suggest that. Uh, uh, Probably it's not even time really to talk about negotiations right. because they, again, they will depend on the results of right. what is going to come in the next few days. Yeah, no, and we're all we're all watching and bracing for that. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on before we shift gears that that, that happened this week. Of course, we saw Viktor Medvedchuk. Um, arrested, posing as a Ukrainian soldier. It made its way across all of our social media feed, uh, feeds. It, it, it prompted a, a rare smile on my face um, regarding news news out of Ukraine. And, um, and I, I was struck by what President Zelensky said later when he said that he was willing to trade Medvedchuk for these uh, these children that have been taken uh, into Russia, do you see is that is that a smart move, um, or in terms of you know trading Medvedchuk to the Russians for these these Ukrainian citizens? Has anything come of that? I haven't seen anything since uh, since President Zelensky's comments. Just you know, we, we should uh, remember that uh, our current president is under Orthodox president. He speaks his mind, and he is really humane. And that's why when, when he's talking about uh, people being in the center of uh, his attention and his po policies, uh, he's right. But uh, sometimes it's it's wrong from the uh, political uh, point of view. I mean, uh, certainly uh, I would love to see uh, Mr. Medvedchuk being jailed for all he has done to our nation, not just for recent several years, but uh, for all his political and oligarchic career. But uh, from the other hand, I can understand uh, how uh, how a president is thinking, and possibly he might uh, change him for, let's say, hundreds of Ukrainian uh, prisoners of war or children, whatever, or possibly for the blockade of Mariupol to get our uh, fighters from there and include in, in, in certainly civilians uh, that are being killed uh, in uh, industrial scale. So I understand him from the human point of view, but from the other hand, we should think about the, the war in general. It's not the first and not the last war with Russia, and it's not the end of this particular conflict. Uh, any thoughts on this, Anton? Regarding Viktor Medvedchuk, you know, I was, uh, uh, you were right, uh, many of us were really happy to I, see I think it. I saw it on your feed first, it was the first place I saw it, actually. Yeah, um, you know, I, I also wrote, probably that was uh, an exaggeration in a way, but I would be happy if Ukraine succeeded to exchange him for at least one Ukrainian child who was kidnapped uh, for Russia. And that would be just a symbolical move. Um, just to show that uh, people like Medvedchuk, they, they, they were they probably just of one child. Uh, he, he doesn't cost uh, what, you know, uh, yeah. you know 100 uh, uh, prisoners of war or 100 children. No, it's, it should be like a symbolical move like to get rid of him. But I would agree with Alexander, um, you know, on a, on, a rational, uh, on a rational level that he needs to be tried, he needs to be brought to justice in Ukraine. And But there is a also very, uh, I think, in, in terms of sort of information, uh, you know, or strategic communication, um, when, when, when Ukraine um, suggested to the Russian side to, uh, to have this exchange, 
then the Russians said, well, he's a, he's a political, he's not a Russian citizen. He's a political leader uh, in Ukraine. He's um, the major opponent to Zelensky, which is, of course, not true. But it also shows us, and this is, and this is very interesting, is that they, they disown him. Yeah? Uh, although the FSB tried to, uh, to bring him from, from Ukraine to Russia, but now they are disowning him. And I think uh, Ukraine has to play on that, saying, well, look, Russia is ready to betray any of you because, right. because they don't really care about you. They just can use you, they will exploit you, but then you're, you're nothing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, I mean, I would actually like to see all those children exchanged for Medvedchuk because I'd like to see all those children back in Ukraine. Um, and on that note, I guess we'll, we can shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at Russia's shifting tactics, its focus on the East, and the appointment of a new field commander known for his ruthless and brutal methods. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center of Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Vienna is my old friend Anton Chekhovsov, director of the Center for Democratic Integrity, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation, and author of the must-read book, and I mean must-read, Russia and the Western Far Right, Tango Noir. I got my copy. You should all get yours. And joining us from Vasilkin in Kiev Oblast is Alexander Hara, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies in Kiev. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google's podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 днів міцної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись, ми, діти, всі ми, живі люди, вся Україна. So Russian forces are regrouping in the east to concentrate on taking all of the Donbass region. The Kremlin has also appointed General Alexander Dvornikov, known as the Butcher of Syria, to command the war in Ukraine. Sasha, I see this as a tactical shift right now. I do not see Russia's strategic goal of subjugating all of Ukraine in one in any way, shape, or form uh, of, of changing right now. I think that is that is unchanged. Do you think this is correct? Well, yes, uh, I believe uh, you, you are absolutely correct. Uh, if we are looking at this uh, situation from, let's say, 10,000 feet, uh, we will see that there is a huge, there was a failure of, a failure of uh, Blitzkrieg due to wrong perception of Ukraine, Western reaction and uh, its uh, capabilities. But I believe uh, what's going on uh, in this war shows uh, the limits of the uh, Putin Putin system, uh, he, uh, the system he created. I mean, not just in the military terms, but political and economic one. Uh, and it's, it's important uh, because uh, over-centralized, uh, uncompetent, in incompetent and corrupt uh, power system in Russia could not produce uh, really efficient uh, military. Secondly, there is a st structural problem in in, uh, in economy which 
actually limits the ability of Russia to to wage this war and thanks to the international sanctions they are running out of resources and there is a technological backwardness and that's why uh, the Russians are trying to turn to Chinese to support their with military mm -hmm. And there is a huge gap between military thinking, brilliant Russian military thinking, and realities at war. So I don't believe that changing these generals who were experienced in war in Donbass before 2022 or in Syria or somewhere else would change something. So they cannot fix the systemic problems that they have. And not to mention morale, because we are fighting for our land and for our Existence and the Russians are fighting for something that really does not exist, like denazification or whatever. So that's why it's a key thing that we should keep in mind, and then we can look at what the Russians are doing on the ground. They're amassing a huge amount of forces and tanks and heavy artillery and other things, and they're about to enter our territory and to fight, and especially near Kharkiv, Izum, and from the southern direction. But I believe. They've been, they will be fighting a bit more efficient than before, yes. but not enough uh, to, to, to just uh, to counter the way how Ukrainian has been fighting uh, all those uh, 50 days. I mean, we've been in maneuverable defense. We were able just to to preserve our forces from being captured, encircled, or destroyed. Uh, but uh, from the uh, from the other point, we were able to uh, disrupt lines of communication, lines uh, of command uh, of Russia. So that's why we have this advantage. Uh, it will be difficult for us to go, to turn to counteroffense, and certainly we need some more hard uh, firepower and thanks yes. to the support of the Westerners. So we we, we have some new tanks, uh, uh, Harvitz and, and some other stuff. But anyway, uh, I'm not, I don't believe that uh, the Russians are capable of uh, completely changing the way how they are waging mm. this I mean, there's an assumption here in the West that the war is about to get much tougher for the Ukrainians for a number of reasons. Number one, I mean, whatever we think of Dvornikov, he is a very, very senior, very high-ranking Russian commander, um, known for his brutal tactics in Syria, the carpet bombing of cities, um, the pounding of, 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 of civilian populations into submission. It's remarkable to me Russia didn't have a field commander on the ground in charge of the whole operation in Ukraine. They were trying to run this operation out of Moscow, which seems completely insane from my point of view. So having Dvornikov there, but also Russia came in initially on four different vectors, which really stretched their supply lines. Now they're gonna be throwing everything at one vector. And also that the, the terrain for Ukraine is gonna be a little bit tougher. It's gonna be a little bit harder for the kind of maneuverability in the more contained area of the Donbass than it was, for example, outside of Kyiv or outside of Kharkiv. Do you expect the, 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 this to get much tougher for Ukraine going forward? And is, do, you, do you see the Ukrainian uh, armed forces adjusting their tactics to, to reflect this new military reality? Well, certainly we're adjusting, and uh, I, I should uh, remind, you, remind you that uh, uh, our joint forces operation has not uh, given up uh, just a meter of land uh, uh, in Donbass. So they've been cap capable of withstanding all those, uh, you know, enforced uh, and the pressure uh, that Russians were, were applying to, to them for these 50 days. And I, I believe with the reinforce uh, from the north and from the west of uh, western part of Ukraine, forces uh, would be capable of stopping that. And given these uh, additional uh, capabilities, and especially with kamikaze drones, with uh, long-range uh, 
artillery, with some uh, armament, uh, we will be able to, able to do. And especially given this uh, know-how that the, the Ukrainian military are doing, we, we just will learn a lot mm -hmm. from all those conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, and, and if you have a look how we are destroying uh, the Russian uh, columns of uh, the heavy armaments, uh, we are using uh, the uh, improvised uh, explosive devices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are using heavily uh, the uh, un uh, unmanned vehicles. Uh, we are uh, using combined uh, fire like uh, artillery, the javelins, uh, and some other means uh, at, at the same time. So we 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 acquired this ability to to fight this modern way of war, right. while Russia is not. And certainly we had uh, much better communication. We, we had much better coercion between the units, which is on our side. And certainly the numbers on their side, but uh, the poor morale is something that undermines yeah. their ability to, to fight. And after this brutal uh, fighting near Kiev and in, in, in East, uh, a lot of uh, well body bags came to Russia, and a lot of uh, uh, those guys wounded came to Russia. And this, you know, uh, the informal uh, talking between uh, those militaries are making uh, them uh, making those who are uh, called for service uh, being less willing to to right. participate in this, uh, in this bloodbath. No, I did see that just before I started this program, I saw that Russian forces had managed to get into the center of, of Mariupol. I haven't seen anything since then or any details about that. On the good news side, uh, the, the, the U.S. House has passed land lease, land lease uh, for Ukraine, which is really going to expedite the shipment of weapons to Ukraine. It still has to pass the, it passed the Senate, it still has to pass the House. Once that's passed, and it's going to pass, President Biden is going to have the ability to unilaterally just start sending weapons to Ukraine uh, at his own discretion. Anton, I want to bring you in here. I mean, given the maximalist Russian goals we were discussing in the first half of the program, how do you view now this much more limited military operation in the East? Well, as far as I understand, the Russians are now trying to bring um, much more troops to the Donbass. Uh, the estimations are that they, they will try to have like five Russian soldiers to one Ukrainian soldier, mm -hmm. so an army of five times more. Um, what I also um, see is that they, they are trying really hard to mobilize their own population in Russia yep. to, to join the war. And to this end, it seems that they have started, uh, as the Ukrainian military intelligence predicted, they started false flag operations on the territory yeah. of Russia, yep. uh, blaming blaming Ukraine for attacks on, say, uh, civilian uh, civilian population, civilian buildings, or social infrastructure. So this is what they're doing. And also, um, there was, I think, yesterday or, or recently, um, reports again by the Ukrainian military intelligence that uh, there is an order, uh, apparently signed by Putin, that if uh, if the Russians fail to occupy particular towns uh, in in the Donbas, uh, they will be prepared to raise them to the ground. And this is where this uh, new commander. Uh, of this entire operation of this war comes in the butcher of Syria. This is what they did in Syria. They would just raise towns and cities to the ground. Um, we also understand that apparently uh, Putin needs to present to his own population something for the 9th of May. Yes. So the the intercepted calls between 
between Russian uh, Russian military and their relatives, uh, according to those to that analysis. So the actual the date is in tenth of May. I don't know for some reason. So if they don't occupy the, those towns which they need to occupy by the tenth of May, uh, they'd say, well, then raise them to the ground. So okay. I'm really afraid that this is a this is an actual plan, not just some blabber on, on, on the phone. Um, yeah, so it's a very, very frightening opportunity. So we're talking about when they say the towns they need to occupy, we're talking about Kharkiv, Mariupol, Nikolaev, Odessa, or what, are, what, what exactly are we talking no, about? No, we, we're talking about smaller towns, okay. uh, not, not, regional, uh, not regional centers. But, you know, with Mariupol, it's almost already uh, raised to the ground. Yes. Uh, so I'm afraid we will see more of this with with towns, with smaller towns in the Donbas region. Uh -huh. And when we, again, thinking of these maximalist Russian goals of eliminating the Ukrainian nation, does this focus on the East suggest to you that Moscow is making a, a tactical retreat from that? Um, take the Donbass and then deal with the rest of Ukraine by other means later? Or are, they, is it, are we in a situation like the Winter War, which when the very early phases went very well for Finland, um, and then Stalin threw in half a million troops and Finland ended up losing 10% of its territory in the, in the end. I mean, that's, this is the situation I'm fear. In the beginning of the Syrian war, wasn't going very well for Russia until Dvornikov was brought in. Um, so, and, and again, we can use the analogy as Carlotta Gall has repeatedly of the first and second Chechen wars, which of course went very, very differently for Russia. So how, how do you see this in terms of the maximalist strategic goals of Russia? Um, I remember that uh, when um, when when they just started, you know, uh, the Russians when they just started um, using this, you know, the rhetoric of invasion. I think many of us thought, well, erroneously, as it turned out, that they would try to occupy the rest of the Donbas, um, the rest of the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, oblasts. Uh, join them to the uh, so-called uh, Donetsk People Republic and Luhansk People Republic, uh, but then obviously, I, th I well, I myself thought that then th they would go further and they would use the salami tactics, you know, mm. uh, taking the rest of Ukraine slice by slice. Well, they decided to do uh, to do differently, but I think now they're probably uh, going back to that. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of those plans, you know, to concentrate on the Donbass and then go further. But not not also not only to on the Donbass, but also on this land bridge to Crimea. This mm -hmm. is extremely important. So, uh, yeah. So two aims they have now: uh, the 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 bridge, uh, the the land bridge right. to Crimea, the rest of the Donbass, and then they will go further. Look, right. Putin Putin will not stop. This is not in his. Uh, this is not in his worldview to stop. He will. He, he can only be stopped. You know, he himself will not stop. Mm. Yeah. No. And, and, and Sasha, well, I mean, I, I would agree that that is the I mean, the first thing is to take Mariupol, create the land bridge, um, and then I'm wondering, are they going to push south along the seacoast and try to take Odessa and completely uh, cut Ukraine off from the sea? Um, or there's been talk of maybe a, a, a push west towards Dnipro and Zaporizhia. Um, how do you, I, I know you kind of pay attention to this kind of the minutia of the, of, of, of the, of the military campaign. How do you see this proceeding going forward? 
Well, uh, firstly, I agree with Anton that uh, the, the Salem tactic, if there is a possibility to grab a bit more of Ukrainian land, they will do this uh, with no hesitation. And I believe uh, one of the primary goals at this point is just to cut Ukraine from both uh, Azov and Black Sea. That's why Odessa is still under the threat. Uh, and they will advance after the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, uh, oblasts in, in, uh, to, to the western part uh, of our south uh, regions. Uh, and secondly, uh, so, uh, they cannot uh, accomplish this conquest without imposing their political will on us. And uh, this could be done only in Kiev. That's why some kind of uh, either defeat, completely defeat of Ukrainian armed forces or seizure of Kiev uh, would bring uh, Russia to this goal. And third goal that you didn't mention, uh, which is suggested in parallel, is to destroy not just the military potential of, of Ukraine, but uh, industrial and economic one. They are uh, shelling and they're hitting with the missiles, uh, the critical infrastructure, industrial uh, enterprises, because they don't they want to undermine our ability to withstand, withstand uh, as as the economical entity. So that's why I believe uh, they they are they are using opportunistic uh, approach mostly, but uh, the long term uh, goal towards Ukraine remains the same. It's to subjugate Ukraine, to limit our ability to, to, to be as an independent nation. If it's possible by cutting us into pieces is one thing. If it's possible to impose a, a kind of agreement that we are limiting our ability to, to govern ourselves and to, 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 uh, to carry on our uh, independent foreign policy. And I'm talking about NATO and EU membership. Yes, so they, they would agree on this as well. But uh, the strategic goal is not changing. Uh, it's the, the way how they are trying to achieve it, uh, given these, uh, let's say, drawbacks of their strategy, is something that is changing uh, their behavior. Okay, we're we're bumping up against the end here. I just kind of want to give you both uh, one last opportunity to to make any remarks or appeals. Um, this podcast is listened to, um, in, I, I am told, by, by 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 members of the policy community here in in DC and in other Western capitals. Sasha, what would you say uh, to 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 Western leaders right now from Kiev? Well, it's a struggle for our existence, and we are doing a job not just for our uh, ch children, but for the whole of Europe and the world, and that's why we need much more support than we, we're experiencing now. We, are, we appreciate that the uh, Western nations are doing, particularly the United States, United Kingdom, in our brotherly nations of Poland and Baltic states, but certainly we need uh, some more. And we need uh, the long-range capabilities to hit uh, platforms, not just hit uh, the uh, missiles that are flying uh, overhead. Uh, and we need something that is uh, forbidden in the West. I mean, the offensive weapons. We are not asking the the strategic uh, intercontinental, intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles. We are asking for all those things that would preserve our cities, our people, and would make a maximum damage for Russia and to turn the mood in Kremlin to, to diplomacy and to negotiation with us. Okay, yeah, and I've, I've seen uh, in terms of good news, I also just saw a news report that Europe is actually drafting a phased-in possible ban on Russian uh, petrol, uh, hydrocarbons, um, which would be nothing short of revolutionary. It still has to be approved by the entire uh, EU, but it's, it's the fact that it's even on the table and on paper right now is pretty remarkable to me. Anton, last word to you before we wrap it up. Um, I'll be very brief. Um, I would refer to what you said now, Brian. Uh, there, there should be more sanctions on Russia, and they, they, the sanctions should be, uh, they should be really damaging. 
you know, they should be destructive. Uh, I, I would even say that we probably uh, should stop talking about the sanctions and talk, stop start talking about economic warfare. This is actually what's happening, you know, to be honest. Um, and the last thing that I want to say is that uh, all this talk about that Ukraine needs to defend itself, I think it's yesterday or even the day before yesterday, Ukraine must win the war. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ukraine should defeat Russia, not just defend itself, it should defeat Russia. Uh, this is very important, uh, not only for Ukraine, but also for the future of Europe. Yeah, I know from your from your lips to God's ears, I've been I've been trying to shift the conversation that way that Ukraine can win this war and the West needs to give Ukraine the tools it needs to win this war. And on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Vienna has been my old friend Anton Shekovsov, director of the Center for Democratic Integrity, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation, and author of the must-read book, Russia and the Western Far Right, Tango Noir. And joining us from Vasilkiv in Kiev Oblast has been Alexander Hara, a former official with Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies in Kiev. Gentlemen, thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Smith is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room. He's keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Level podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 